Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are shaping the global debate. As a columnist, most of my discussions are off the record and then used as background for my articles. With this show, however, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. On the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights with the one amendment which I've mentioned is as follows. In favour of adoption, 48. Against adoption, none. Abstentions, 8. So Dear friends, the stage, human rights are our most precious heritage. Justice and freedom and dignity are rooted in many... My guest this week is Andrew Gilmore, who until the end of 2019 was the UN's Assistant Secretary General for Human Rights and who worked at the UN for decades, but he is now worried that global protection for human rights is eroding And Andrew, you wrote recently in our paper that human rights are under attack and that the onslaught on the human rights agenda is more ferocious than ever before. Why do you say that? Well, thank you very much. I would say that I've been involved in this for a long time. You said I've been in the UN for decades. Yes, it was 30 years. But even before that, when I was a schoolboy, I joined Amnesty in 1979. And um, through all that period, I wouldn't say we saw anything like we are seeing now in terms of... uh, major systematic pushback on the whole the spectrum of rights, whether they are economic and social or whether they are civil and political. Let me explain. So there was progress for sort of decades, I would say, and it ended round about 2010. I mean, it's an approximate date, probably connected to the austerity packages as a result of the financial crisis and the rising inequalities, plus perceived increase of migration and the fact that it was possible to blame migrants and refugees, both for potential terrorism and also for the fact that jobs were disappearing or going to foreigners. So I think this partly explains the pushback against rights. But then there's been a sort of a knock-on effect beyond Europe and in America to a number of other countries where you see the rise of populist authoritarian nationalists, every one of whom basically chooses scapegoats to point the finger of blame at for society's ills. And they are always minorities and they're usually vulnerable groups already since we're seeing this in so many countries, whether it's the United States, uh, countries of Europe, India, Russia, many other countries, Turkey, Egypt, you see these the growth of push back against rights and a push against minorities. So you mentioned a whole spectrum of countries where you're worried about the situation. Now, it's in some ways invidious to pick out one problem over another. 
But are there particular issues, if you had to pick two or three, first in terms of the severity of the issue, the biggest human rights crises at the moment, but also ones that perhaps aren't getting the attention that they should be, maybe for political reasons? Well, yes, the problem is very widespread. Sure, I can point at one or two countries, and I would certainly list China very much in that. And secondly, I would the horrors of Syria. And this has been ongoing, but for the last few weeks, we have seen in northwest Syria the terrible, terrible effects of the government, Russian-backed, onslaught against the people of that pocket. So there are places where the problems are particularly severe, but you're absolutely right. There are a whole range of countries where the issues are talked about much less often. And whether whether they're in Europe, such as Hungary and Poland, or whether we're talking about Turkey, which is clearly there's been a major regression of human rights there and also in Egypt, and the rise of populist authoritarian nationalism in India is also something that is troubling to us. Is the fact that this erosion is in fact so global in nature part of the problem because there are fewer and fewer countries that are prepared to take a stand and call out what's happening, either because they themselves have moved in a more sort of majoritarian populist direction or because the political costs of taking on, say, China are rising? Both of those are extremely important points. First of all, the fact that there is an increasing number of countries who are so openly violating human rights in a more aggressive way than they were doing before, you call it a conspiracy of silence, but actually it's more active than that in a way. They actively support one another. It's not just a matter of silence. If you look at, for example, despite the fact that the Uyghurs are Muslim, almost the entire Muslim world has lined up behind China, even though we're talking about well over a million people put into what could perhaps be called concentration camps. Similarly, the Chinese are supportive of what the Saudis and the Gulf Coalition have been doing in Yemen and on the issues of the killing of the Washington Post correspondent, Jamal Khashoggi. So the fact that countries are aligning in this way is undeniably the case. And this makes it much harder for those who are in the human rights movement trying to resist this. And what was the UN's position on all this? Because, of course, as you know all too well, having worked inside the system for decades, the UN plays a very important role, but it's always been a very contentious role. And in 2018, the US actually walked out of the UN Human Rights Council. And I think uh, Nikki Haley's quote, who was then the US UN ambassador, was that it was a cesspool of political bias. And she accused it in particular of unending hostility to Israel, I'd like to talk about both those charges in a second. But generally, before we get on to those specifics, did you feel by the time you left the UN that it was getting harder to do the job for the UN to be an effective voice for human rights? Well, yes, it's always hard for the UN to speak out on human rights issues. That is clear. And one of the reasons that gets thrown at us for why we shouldn't, and China is particularly adept at using this argument, is that if you speak about human rights in a country, you are somehow violating the UN Charter. They say specifically you're violating Article 2.7 of the Charter, which says that you cannot intervene in a country's domestic matters. Now, of course, in 1945, which is when the UN Charter was written, when they talked about intervene, they were talking about things like the Nazi invasion of Poland or the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. That's what intervention meant in those days, but that's now being used to somehow denigrate anybody who raises a human rights matter in somebody else's country. And I don't believe that that was the intention of the founders of the UN to say that you could never even mention and criticize the human rights matter. Intervention meant something far more concrete and specific than that. So it is always difficult. And the fact that countries are that much more sensitive 
than they were in the past about being seen to violate human rights has, I think, made it even harder. And that's why the pressures are on senior UN officials to shut up. Mm. Now, taking on this, this Israel question, which has been around for a very long time, eventually, as I say, the US walked out partly for this reason that Haley called unending hostility to Israel. And I think, I don't know whether it's still true, there was a statistic going around that the UN Human Rights Council had condemned Israel more than all the other countries in the world combined. So was there anything in that charge that there was a disproportionate focus on Israel as far as you were concerned? Well, first of all, I do believe Israel deserves to be strongly criticised for its human rights record. But do I wish that other countries were criticised more? Then the answer is yes, I do. So in that sense, it's disproportionate, although, as I said, I don't think any of the criticisms issued by the UN in any of its forums, particularly including the Human Rights Council, are wrong. But I get the point about the disproportion in the sense that other countries deserve to be criticized a lot more. However, the US, you said, partly came out. I'd say it was entirely for that reason. They invoked other ones, but that was clearly it. Um, Nikki Haley was in my view, the most political, and I mean personally political, U.S. ambassador there has been in the 75 years history of the U.N. She was doing it for domestic political purposes. I think there is no doubt in our minds that that was what she was trying to do. As in pleasing Donald Trump and potentially preparing and, for a presidential And getting order. funding from Mr. Sheldon Adelson or whoever it is for her future domestic political career. Because in this matter, she was not more moderate than Trump. If anything, she was even more extreme on other issues. Yes, she played the more sort of civilizing influence compared to other people in the Trump administration. But on this matter, she was way out there. She was as extreme as you can get in basically making life as miserable as possible, if it wasn't miserable already, for the Palestinians. Cutting off funds to hospitals in East Jerusalem, cutting off funds to refugees. So desperate measures, vindictive beyond belief in our view. And I say our view, I've left the UN now, but almost everybody in the UN and other diplomats as well, sees these measures as being unfair and, and incredibly vindictive. Mm. So I guess you're saying that although she was right that the UN Human Rights Council might have been disproportionately focused on Israel, she was wrong and the US was wrong to minimise the criticisms. Absolutely, I think it's wrong. And to give one example, on one day, um, a few months ago, when the Israelis shot and killed 71 people, including a number of children, who came to the Gaza fence. Yes, there were stones and other projectiles being thrown, but they did not pose threats to any Israeli. And 71 people were shot with high-velocity snipers' rifles through a fence. She said the Israelis acted with restraint. I mean, that is just an incredible remark to say that, I mean, if snipers shoot 71 people, including children, and you, you call that restraint, when none of them, none of those snipers were in physical danger. That's just one example. And this actually ties up to a much wider issue which is that for those people involved in trying to protect and promote human rights, the biggest problem in a way is the selectivity of people's approach. Because let's face it, if you only criticize violations of human rights when they are committed by your opponents, then frankly, you don't really care about human rights. You're just using it as a stick for political or geostrategic reasons. And this is the problem at the moment in not so much the Human Rights Council, but in the Security Council in New York, where the divisions are so deeper than they have been since the Cold War, in my view. And you will find the fact that, for example, the British, the French and the Americans, quite rightly, in my view, are extremely harsh about the barbarous human rights violations carried out by the government of Syria. 
On the other hand, they are remarkably silent about violations carried out by their allies in the Gulf when it comes to Yemen. And in the case of Israel, the Americans are absolutely silent and give a carte blanche to anything, literally anything right now, that the Israelis choose to do. There's not even a whiff of criticism. And on the other hand, you will find the Russians and the Chinese who are prepared to criticize Israel, for example. On the other hand, they prevent criticism of Syria or they prevent criticism of Myanmar or they prevent criticism of North Korea. Has this not always been there? Yes, it has, but it's become that much sort of sharper at the moment, I would say, this selectivity. And at a time where there is such a pushback against rights, in some ways you are proving the point for those like Russians and Chinese who say that you shouldn't ever discuss human rights in the Security Council because by doing so, you are politicizing it. But then if you then politicize it as aggressively as Americans do, for example, Nikki Haley also tried to claim that in one of her first speeches of three massive human rights cases in the world, Syria, no problem, North Korea, no problem, Cuba, okay, Cuba also commits human rights violations. But the idea that they are somehow in the top three proved to everybody that her concerns were political rather than human rights. And that actually proved the point of the Chinese and the Russians and their allies that bringing human rights into the Security Council is a form of politicization of them. And that is a very, very problematic aspect for the human rights movement, that. And the other criticism, though, that's often thrown at the UN human rights machinery is that the UN Human Rights Council is flawed, not just because of an overfocus on Israel, but also because some of the countries that have voted to serve on it are themselves big human rights abusers. Recent examples have been Saudi Arabia, China, Egypt, I think Venezuela's currently on it. And Brazil. And Brazil, indeed. But how do you respond to that? I mean, doesn't that really make it impossible? Yes, it is. It makes it really, really hard. And I absolutely agree that some abominable human rights violators are sitting on the Human Rights Council and therefore in judgment on other people. But that's because the UN is composed of member states. And you're not just going to set up a separate body just of countries that have good human rights records, because if you did, they would have absolutely no influence on the countries that have bad records. So this is not a defense of it. It just happens to be the reality. When you have something called the United Nations involving every country in the world, then you're going to get the violators as much as the non-violators. The trouble is there are a particular number of violators on it. But for people who are not following closely, explain then, how can this Human Rights Council with human rights violators on it nonetheless play a useful role? Well, first of all, The Human Rights Council is not the only aspect of the UN that deals with human rights. That is the member state aspect of it. There's also the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, which plays, in my view, an effective role. That is composed of UN staff doing stuff and good work in many countries of the world. So it's not just that the Human Rights Council, which passes its resolution, that that is not the sole forum for dealing with human rights or the sole engine of trying to promote them. But when you and the UN staff working on human rights, to what extent did you have a free hand to say there's a problem here, we're going to go and investigate it? Or were you necessarily, you know, you could be blocked from traveling or subject to political interference? Well, no, we have, uh, particularly under the former High Commissioner Zaid, we had a strong way of sending a message that you're not going to be rewarded by preventing our access. We are still going to report on you, even if we do it virtually, even if we do it by interviewing refugees in the neighboring countries from which you have expelled your own people. For example, there are many countries that refuse to let human rights people into their countries. And Venezuela has been very difficult for us. Israel is very difficult. Syria is completely impossible. Myanmar is extremely difficult. North Korea, virtually impossible. But that doesn't stop 
the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights preparing reports on these matters and actually presenting them to the Human Rights Council. So the stories are still getting out there, even if the members of the Human Rights Council don't do that much on all of those issues. But it's an important point because you're focusing on the Human Rights Council. But because there is no veto in that, even if there are a lot of human rights violators on it, it is possible to get resolutions adopted in the Human Rights Council, which it is impossible to do in the Security Council. So, for example, there have been things on Yemen and on Israel-Palestine and on Myanmar and on North Korea and a whole range of issues that it was impossible to get any agreement on Syria, particularly, sorry, uh, where it's impossible because the Russians in particular veto all resolutions on Syria. So it it is, uh, however flawed the membership of the Human Rights Council is, and however flawed the membership of the Security Council is, quite frankly, it it doesn't mean that there is no other action involved. It just Mm -hmm. means that the member states don't support those of us who were on the front line of trying to resolve things working as UN staff members. And as UN staff members, though, were there certain areas where it was difficult to go? For example, taking on a permanent member of the UN Security Council say, China on the Uyghurs, or if you prefer, the US on the treatments of of refugees on the southern border? Extremely hard, absolutely. And we came under those two examples that you used, and we haven't discussed this in advance, but those two countries were extremely threatening to us when we raised those two issues. And so what what do you do sitting sitting in the office in New York? Do you is it inevitably a kind of compromise? Do you have to discuss it with the Secretary General? How far you go? Yeah, it is. And of course, because the damage that they can inflict on the UN if we go too far goes beyond our human rights office. They can threaten to cut off the entire contribution to the UN as a whole. So the stakes can be very, very high and countries, particularly those two you mentioned, but many others as well, have no hesitation in throwing their weight around and making dire threat. Mm. And the US, as we were discussing, did pull out of the uh, Human Rights Council. Simultaneously, there's been, across the whole UN system, something that the US is now complaining about, which is an advance of Chinese influence. I think Chinese nationals ahead of four of 15 agencies, the Americans were saying. Um, How, specifically on the human rights agenda, has this American pullback affected things? I mean, is China's voice as a result more powerful. Yes. The US withdrawal from the Human Rights Council was regrettable, but not a catastrophe, particularly since their own record in the last two or three years has clearly deteriorated as well. So actually, that would weaken their voice were they on it anyway. And people say to me, um, look, how hypocritical you're having to listen to the Trump administration in the Human Rights Council. So it hasn't been a catastrophic for human rights that given what their policies have been, that they have opted to come off the Human Rights Council. It's regrettable. It's undeniably weakened their position, though. And this goes well beyond the Human Rights Council and indeed beyond human rights to the whole UN. If you are anti-multilateralism, if you basically despise international organizations, then you shouldn't be surprised if your influence within those international organizations dramatically decreases and the countries that you believe are rivals have greatly expanded capacity to wreak their... (laughs) whatever actions they want to do. And that is exactly what's happening with China as a result of the US attitude towards the UN. Mm. And so to conclude, I mean, the article you wrote for us and a lot of what you had to say today uh, is a little depressing if you're an advocate for human rights. You're still involved in this field. Are we just going to have to accept that this is a bad period and that things will have to wait a while before they spring back? Well, Yes. And by the way, the main point 
of the article that I wrote for you in December was to say that we needed to defend the defenders, defend human rights defenders who are on the front line of work and who are being subject to vicious reprisals by governments in many parts of the world. And this is an increasing phenomenon of people who are punished for cooperating with the UN by sharing with us information on the human rights situation in their countries. And it's absolutely outrageous to me and to many other people that they should be punished for that. And I think the UN and indeed everybody else should take up their cause because that can really help them in their countries if foreigners raise the issue. And that is a vital thing that those of us who live in countries where human rights situation is not bad and therefore we can comfortably state our case uh, should show greater awareness and sympathy for those who are not in that predicament. But in terms of the global picture, yes, it is possible to paint a very, very bleak picture of the world's human rights situation at the moment. I don't think it's permanently a lost cause. I believe that there was progress for many decades, which is now for the last 10 years or so has been There's a regression now, but it doesn't mean that it'll always be such. And I think the fact that today's youth movements are so good on, particularly on environmental issues, and I hope increasingly on human rights issues, is I think something that is a matter of great hope for us all. And I would say that that is an area where we need to build. The human rights movement has to reach out and work with global youth movements, who after all are going to be the ones that are going to be around the longest and can actually move governments perhaps more than they have done in the past to do better things on the human rights sphere. That was Andrew Gilmore ending this week's edition. I hope you'll join me again next week. And remember, if you don't already subscribe, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link at ft.com slash Rachman Review. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.